1: Now, from our nation's capital, this is
2: Bloomberg Sound On. People think the country is on the wrong track and are upset. It's usually really bad news to the party in power.
3: The Democrats have a very difficult challenge on their hands when it comes to the midterm.
2: Bloomberg Sound On. Politics,
1: policy and perspective from DC's top names.
4: I think there's a lot of pent-up demand for electing a woman and I think 2022 could be the year of the woman. I see the demand that we have today as the baseline for the future. It means our economy is roaring back.
1: Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio.
5: 2021 is ending. With some hope, Mitch McConnell is hoping Joe Manchin joins the Republican Party. Ted Cruz is hoping a 2024 presidential run will go better than last time. And we'll hear in just a moment from Congresswoman Madeline Dean, who, like the rest of her party, is hoping that the Democrats' big social spending and tax package is still salvageable. My name is Emily Wilkins, and I am hoping that neither myself nor my Bloomberg government co-host, Jack Fitzpatrick, have caught the Omicron variant yet. yet. We are filling in for Joe Manchin you today for the fastest hour in politics. Well, joining Jack and I now is Democratic Congresswoman Madeline Dean of Pennsylvania. Congresswoman, thank you so much for joining us on this Christmas Eve Eve. Obviously, the big news of this week, driving everything in D.C., has been Senator Joe Manchin saying more or less that he wants a do-over on Biden's social policy and tax plan, supporting he might support certain parts of the legislation, but not the entire thing. I just wanted to start off by getting your perspective. What's the number one thing from that bill that needs to pass?
6: Oh, well, thank you, Emily and Jack. Thank you for inviting me with you. There are too many number ones in that bill. What I like is focus on build Back Better on our children, on our seniors, on working families. Uh, so, number one, our children. Uh, universal pre K. What an. That would be to get children started early with.
5: Congresswoman, Congresswoman Dean, I'm so sorry. I think we might give you a call back in just a minute. I know we're having a little bit of of problems with that line. Um, But I I do have to say, uh, you know, what she was just talking about there, Jack, uh, as far as the, the difficulty in picking out just yeah. one priority I mean this really was a bill that was designed for a lot of different things but really each piece of it has a lot of lawmakers who are very very supportive of it
7: yeah and we're getting the sense uh, especially looking back to our uh, interview earlier this week with uh, congressman Yarmuth, the budget chair that probably the child tax credit is the centerpiece but that takes up so much of the money that they have to spend if mansion holds them to 1.75 trillion or so and there can be no no accounting gimmicks. Uh, the child tax credit, as constructed, costs about 1.6 trillion over 10 years. So it's it's going to be a really tough uh, decision, series of decisions on what would get cut, what would get shrunk. Potentially, there could be changes to the child tax credit mm-hmm. uh, to make that less costly. And Manchin has talked about uh, work requirements. The, but a, a lot of Democrats have said that could kick a lot of people off, a lot of grandparents, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So it, as we just were starting to hear, this is going to be a really tough one.
5: Well, the, also, the difficulty is here is that people are already getting these checks in the mail. 36 million Americans have already got gotten used to this benefit and so unlike something like say paid family or medical leave which would be a totally new program being instated this would actually be taking away Um, I think at this point congresswoman uh, I believe you're back in and and you're joined with us again so I I just wanted to to give you the floor again to talk about sort of the, the number one priority that you think needs to be in the bill
6: Thank you, Emily. I'm hoping you can hear me better now. Ah, Loud and clear. Talk about about investment in infrastructure and all (laughs) those things that we need uh, to move our families forward. Uh, As I told you, what I I love about this bill is it's very future thinking. It invests in our children. It invests in working families. It invests in our seniors, and it invests in the protection of our planet for those children, my grandchildren and their children, uh, and the future of um, our country. So I'm very excited about the education piece, which is universal pre-K, how we know that will get children off to a very strong uh, start. And as the grandmother of two two two-year-olds, I have to tell you, these young people, these young children are sponges. And so it'll be very good for our country if we better educate all of our children in an excellent and equitable way.
7: On the senior
6: side, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead.
7: Oh, I didn't mean to cut you off. Well, but if you don't mind me following up, uh, we heard from Congressman Yarmouth earlier uh, in the week saying, in his view, the child tax credit really is a main centerpiece of this. If it needs to get shrunken down, uh, the, the child tax credit is still a, a really key thing for many Democrats. He also mentioned pre-K education and some environmental measures. Uh, but I'm, I'm wondering, when Senator Manchin talks about work requirements or in any way shrinking down the child tax credit applies to—is that a deal breaker for you, or what? How does that factor into your thinking on this bill?
6: Oh, I, I certainly prize Chairman Yarmuth's words on that. We know that the child tax credit, which is really a tax cut—it's not a gift—it's a tax mm-hmm. cut for working families—is making an extraordinary difference in the lives of working families. Uh, we know that it's bringing 30, 40 percent of children out of poverty which means it's bringing them out of hunger, which means it's bringing their families out of hunger. Uh, I am very um, disappointed with uh, the suggestion by Senator Manchin for any kind of means testing. Uh, Also, uh, some of the reporting that perhaps you read uh, that uh, Mr. Manchin uh, said to his colleagues that he worried that uh, families receiving the child tax credit would spend money on drugs. Uh, I find that offensive uh, and bigoted, and so I hope none of our policymaking is driven by those kinds of decisions. After all, I wonder, did the senator ask the same thing or have the same cynicism about the very wealthy when they received their tax credits? Uh, Were they possibly using it for drugs? That's not the way to drive policy. The way to drive policy is for the many uh, and not for the few.
5: Congresswoman, I also wanted to ask you a little bit. One thing that was discussed a lot before the pandemic, but since hasn't gotten a lot of attention, is the opioid epidemic. Records were hit this year in the number of drug overdoses. and, And Congresswoman, I know that this is an issue that is very close to you and your family. Is there enough that's being done right now by the federal government to address the opioid epidemic?
6: No, uh, not enough. Uh, When we have in a single 12-month period during COVID, uh, 100,000 Americans dead from overdose. 100,000, that's 275 people a day. Families being devastated by the loss uh, of someone to addiction. It's a disease of addiction. So no, we are not doing enough. Uh, We have to work on every level, uh, state, federal, local, uh, as well as partnering with the nonprofits. Uh, You're right. I have a personal connection to this, as do do many families. I have my middle son, Harry, is more than nine years in long-term recovery from addiction to opioids.
5: And you recently Uh, did a, a book with him talking a little bit about that. We
6: did. We wrote a book together, which was a a strange, uh, surprising joy to be able to tell our story through this memoir uh, about uh, his struggle uh, as he fell into addiction and my struggle trying to find out as his mother what was going so terribly wrong. Our story is, is uh, a very common story. Uh, and what I want to be more common is that those who do suffer from this disease get, to get the chance for long-term uh, resources uh, and support one piece of legislation uh, that I have introduced in a bipartisan way uh, it has to do with how we treat uh, folk- folks who are suffering from the disease. Uh, one way to treat is through long-acting injectable buprenorphine. But right now, the regulations require that a physician return, um, if they have it on the shelf, they return it after 14 days if they haven't been able to uh, use it for a patient we need to think outside the box. We need to meet this crisis where it is. So we have a bill in a bipartisan way that would extend that uh, from 14 days to 60 days so that more people will have access to long-acting injectables to help Mm -hmm. them uh, recover uh, from this disease. There's so much more we can do.
5: Is there a sense that there's going to be a vote on that bill any time in the new year?
6: I hope so. We'll be fighting for it. As I said, um, I really... I'm proud to say it is bipartisan. Uh, I've introduced it along with Mary Gay Scanlon, Brian Fitzpatrick, Victoria Spartz, So that kind of bipartisanship with people that I may not agree with other policies too often about, uh, but they know and their districts know and their constituents know this is a crisis. We have to think differently, and we have an obligation to save lives.
7: Uh, Congresswoman, speaking of things that could potentially uh, get some bipartisan support, early in the year 2022. We spoke yesterday to Congressman Tom Cole, who said that if Congress does need to back up uh, to provide more resources to this effort to uh, push uh, back against the Omicron variant of the coronavirus, that is something he thinks could get some uh, bipartisan support. Uh, We haven't seen a, a request from the administration, but I'm curious, one, what you think of how the administration is doing to expand testing and hospital capacity, and does Congress have a role? Does there need to be a bill to provide more resources there?
6: Well, I think we want to make sure that all the resources we have already passed are taken full advantage of. But it reminds me uh, somewhat of the opioid crisis. We have to be thinking so differently, so creatively. Uh, You saw that there was a bit of a surprise among many experts that Omicron would develop and spread so quickly, doubling, tripling, quadrupling, in just a matter of days. Um, So I believe we we have to do more to, A, get people fully vaccinated, and, B, make testing available everywhere, because the more we test, the more we know where the virus is, the better off we are going to protect ourselves. I give the administration a tremendous amount of credit. Uh, Surely I wish it would be sooner, but we're going to have 500 million at-home tests available in January, uh, and we have to be doing that, have testing sites Uh, as we did in the beginning, uh, make it very available, not have people standing in long lines, especially as we hit this holiday season and the cooler temperatures in many areas of the country where we are more inside. Well, Congresswoman Uh, Dean...
5: We do need to get running, but I want to thank you so much for taking the time joining us today. That was Democratic Congresswoman Madeline Dean of Pennsylvania. Coming up next, we're going to be talking a little bit more about Omicron, a little bit more about Joe Manchin. I'm Emily Wilkins here with Jack Fitzpatrick. This is Bloomberg.
1: You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio.
7: Well, you heard earlier from Congresswoman Madeline Dean, a Democrat who is disappointed in how Senator Manchin has held up uh, the social tax and spending legislative agenda for Democrats. We've also got to dig into the Omicron news. I'm I'm Jack Fitzpatrick here with my co-host for the day, Emily Wilkins, and we're going to bring in our panel, Bloomberg Politics contributors, Jeannie sheehan and Rick Davis. Now, earlier today... White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki gave an update on the two new pills for high-risk adults battling COVID-19. She says the administration has purchased 10 million doses of Pfizer's medication, uh, with just over 250,000 of those pills expected to be available in January. Here is what Jen Psaki had to say about that today.
0: We've also purchased 3 million Merck doses, which were just approved today, and we expect to get the majority of those by the end of January
7: by the end of january uh, that that seems to go hand in hand with uh maybe a little bit of a late push on some of the things that we want to see this winter they're trying to ramp ramp up testing capacity, hospital capacity. It's difficult for that to to get done now in this holiday surge. Uh, But it is good news that that these pills are approved. Jeannie, I'm I'm curious what you think. We've talked so much about vaccination status, vaccine capacity. What do these covid pills actually mean for people's day to day lives and, and the state of the pandemic?
3: You know, I I think I I go with the scientists on this who say that these pills next to the vaccine are sort of the biggest step forward, the biggest advance we've seen in terms of combating this uh, pandemic. And so this is very big news. Um, I don't think we've quite as, you know, a nation or a world wrapped our head around what this could mean in terms of easing up, just as an example, in terms of hospitalizations. We've got first responders who are over burdened overwhelmed with this third fourth surge at this point and these pills are a very big promise that we can ease up on some of that so very very good and very big news in the last couple days with both of these pills being
5: approved. Not to downplay the good news part, but Rick Davis, I'm wondering if there is also a risk to this. If people know that they can just get a pill, get a shot, should they get COVID and likely avoid the the, the worst side effects of it. Is this going to reduce the incentive for some people to get that vaccine?
2: You know, it could be an excuse. I, I, I would accept that. Uh, Emily, I think you've got it. You make a good point. Um, uh, it's hard enough to get the remaining, you know, 20, 30, 40% of the population to get jabbed. And uh, I'm sure they'll look for every excuse they can possibly get, because for whatever reason, the easiest option of getting a vaccine doesn't seem to interest them. I would say, you know, as part of the triage of this pandemic, uh, as Jeannie said, getting people out of hospitals is, would be really, really super. Uh, and uh, take the strain off of our medical system, which would be great. Um, uh, it it it, it's happening now because of this new strain, Omicron. But, but what I think is most uh, important is the timing of all this because you know, we talked a little bit about this in yesterday's show. I mean, we are, we are in a full-on um, uh, uh, surge of the Omicron. I, I saw uh, statistics earlier today, 500% in Florida, 500% in, uh, in DC, uh, where we live, where I live, uh, increase in December. Uh, and, 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 and one note was that, uh, you could have 60% of the population vax or unvaxed, uh, contracting the Omicron version of the virus, uh, by March, by March. Hmm. So you get these pills at the end of January, you get the extra test kits at the end of January. I mean, like, okay, we've loaded up in this administration, lots of stuff for the end of January, um, but we're going to have 60 percent potentially of the population infected by March. I mean, that. I think it seems to be going a little too slow by this administration.
7: Right. Just a, a little too late for a holiday rush. Holiday travel, the wave of cases we've seen, seems to be a little bit of a theme. Uh, our colleague Josh Wingrove has, had a story today on the Bloomberg Terminal. Headline is COVID pill rationing is next focus as U.S. clears Merck and Pfizer, uh, Jeannie, I mean, there are logistical issues to go through here, right, they, that they need to decide. What, what comes next uh, with these pills available but to produce millions of them? What are you looking for?
3: Well, I, Josh makes such a great point in that piece. Um, you know, we've seen the shortage of tests available even though they have been around for a lot longer than these pills in just the last couple of weeks. I know many people who have been unable to get tests and I think he makes an excellent point about how this is gonna be executed with these pills. Is there going to be a rationing? Who are they going to be available for? And let's not forget also, at what cost? Because that is a huge challenge. Whether you look at the test or the pills, this is a big investment for people. And unless we get support for that, and particularly people in need, that is a big challenge as well.
7: Well, one other thing to have an eye on here, and we touched on this in the interview With Congresswoman Madeline Dean, was there's a question of whether Congress needs to step in and help provide more resources? We've heard about the White House's plan, uh, sort of going solo on testing capacity, hospital capacity. Uh, Obviously, distributing these pills will be an issue. Uh, The Congresswoman mentioned if there does need to be a bill to provide more resources, she also does think making sure the previously allocated resources uh, is a significant issue. Emily, we heard that from. Congressman Cole, a Republican yesterday. We heard it from a Democrat today. That seems seems to to be a a wrinkle to look for, right?
5: Yeah, it seems to be a theme. Seems to be really a theme throughout the the last year. I'm thinking of everything with the housing eviction, the money that was funded and and took months if it ever reached the people who needed it.
7: So we'll keep an eye out if there is going to be an Omicron bill early in the new year. Coming up, we're going to talk to Mike Plant, West Virginia Democratic strategist who has worked for and against Joe Manchin. I'm Jack Fitzpatrick with Emily Wilkins. This is Bloomberg.
1: Broadcasting live from our nation's capital, Bloomberg 99.1 to New York, Bloomberg 1130 to Boston, Bloomberg 1061 to San Francisco, Bloomberg 960 to the country, Sirius XM channel 119 and around the globe, the Bloomberg Business app and BloombergRadio.com. This is Bloomberg Sound on with Joe Matthew.
5: Today is festivus and while there may or may not have been a poll involved, Senator Joe Manchin had an open airing of grievances about all the issues he has with President Joe Biden's social policy and spending bill. We're going to be doing a deep dive in just a minute into the mind of Manchin. Well, joining Jack and I now, we're going to jump right into it with Mike Plant, a West Virginia Democratic strategist who has previously advised Joe Manchin as well as some of Joe Manchin's opponents. Uh, Mike, thank you so much for for taking the time joining us today. Um, obviously, Senator. Joe Manchin has spoken a lot this week and I'm just wondering right off the bat what are your takeaways where do you think he stands in terms of the social policy legislation in the new year
4: Mike Mike, do you hear us hello
5: hello how are you doing today
4: I'm sorry I lost you there for a moment.
5: That is, that is okay. <laughs> Tech issues seem to be the, the name of the day. I will I will gripe about that for the Festivus poll later. Um, but I wanted to just start off by, by chatting with you a little bit about all of Joe Manchin. He's obviously been been chat, chatting a lot this week, and I'm just trying to get a sense of what your takeaway is. What does Manchin want to see happen with that social policy legislation in the new year?
4: Well, at, at his heart, Joe Manchin is a fiscal conservative, but, he was a fiscal conservative in the legislature. He was a fiscal conservative uh, as governor, and he's been a fiscal conservative in the, uh, in the Senate. So I think he worries about long-term sustainability of these kind of programs. He had signaled that he was for a, uh, um, a well-defined spending bill, but I think obviously at some point in his mind it got off the rails and it was a bridge too far for him to go.
7: So, Mike, one point Senator Manchin has made a few times is his concerns about inflation, obviously a concern for a lot of people, including the Biden administration right now, but you know, we've heard from the uh, Penn Wharton budget model that this uh, Build Back Better bill really is only projected to add something like 0.2 percentage points to inflation in its first year. This may not be fully paid for, but it's not exactly a stimulus bill. Uh, do you have an understanding of sort of where Senator Manchin's views on inflation are, are coming from? And really, I guess my fundamental question is, why is there such a, a conversation about inflation for a bill uh, that that isn't the kind of stimulus we saw with the one point nine trillion dollar stimulus earlier this year.
4: Uh, yeah. Well, again, I think he, he, from Joe's perspective, I think he he believes that uh, he he was sounding the alarm on inflationary pressures uh, earlier in the year when people were downplaying it. So I I mm-hmm. I, I think that he it's uh, not that he discredits or that. Uh, uh he he doesn't listen to the uh to some of those prognostications, but I still think he's concerned about the inflationary pressures uh that exist in the economy, that they'll be longer term than uh what some experts have suggested. I think he also thinks there's gonna be other spending needs coming up because of uh uh the ongoing fight against COVID nineteen. So he's he's hesitant to put uh uh, all these eggs in the uh, you know in, in one right. basket, as it were. I know one thing that he's concerned about is the, the, the means testings for for some of these programs that uh, he thinks they're going to they're 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 going to benefit people that are making too high an income. He'd rather see those targeted at lower income folks, and sure. that makes them more 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 affordable and more sustainable over the long haul.
5: So it sounds like Senator Manchin is leaving some room open to work on things going forward with the changes that you just laid out. But I know that there's also been some talk about Senator Joe Manchin moving from a Democrat to a Republican. And Senator Mitch McConnell has admitted he's been trying to woo him in that direction for years.
1: Uh, We come from states that have a lot in common, that have become increasingly red over the last decade or so. And I think Imagine it's discovering is that there just aren't any Democrats left in the Senate that are uh, pro-life and terribly concerned about uh, debt and deficit and and inflation. So he he feels like a man alone.
5: That was Senator uh, Mitch McConnell speaking recently on the Hugh Hewitt Show. Uh, Mike, how likely is this courting uh, by McConnell going to work on on Mansion?
4: Well, it's not. It's it just as uh, baseball returns every spring, uh, every spring or or fall or summer or whatever whatever uh, portion of the year you want to point to. Republicans routinely trot out the Joe Manchin's going to switch parties uh, play. Look, he's he's always been a Democrat. His family has always been Democrat. Uh, he, you know, he's he'll remain a Democrat. This is simply uh, a a Republican ploy. To get folks excited, to stir up chaos and create obstruction. You know, Joe, I don't. Joe Manchin, when he was asked this just three months ago, I think his response was not "no," but "hell no." Uh, you know, Joe is Joe's a Democrat, and he'll remain a Democrat.
7: So, Mike, we heard earlier in the hour from Congresswoman Madeline Dean, a Democrat from Pennsylvania, uh, a supporter of the Build Back Better bill, obviously already had differences with Senator Manchin. uh, But she brought up reports that Senator Manchin has raised the issue of people spending the child tax credit money on drugs, uh, and, and it, it, you know, we got into that in our conversation with her, but she she described that as offensive. Seems to be a, a point of frustration, it, it, one of many, maybe from sort of progressive lawmakers, with Senator Manchin. Uh, wh- I mean, where where does Senator Manchin really stand on who these child tax credit payments go to, uh, and and the issue of drugs? Well,
4: obviously, look, Joe Manchin. Uh, uh, First of all, I, I've run the only campaign to ever defeat Joe Manchin back in 1996 when he ran for governor. And I've worked for him when he ran for governor in 2003. Uh, so, you know, I've been on both sides of Joe Manchin. My personal politics are, are, uh, are, are more progressive than Joe's. But we live in a red, in a state that was won 40 percent by, uh, by uh, Donald Trump. Uh, Joe, Joe Manchin is concerned. That, that for for uh, that too many of these incentives incentives and too many of these credits uh, go to people earning uh, with too high an income. He, he he's focused I think on means testing and he's uh, uh, he, he wants to make sure that, that that the people who can benefit from this the most get it and that there are no disincentives to get people back into the workforce.
5: Mike, I'm going to put you on the spot here. Ten seconds. Is what Manchin is doing right now going to win the favor of the people of West Virginia when he runs again? Yes or no? Uh, Yes. All right. We'll leave it there. Mike Plant, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us today. Sorry about that quick ending. Uh, Democratic strategist from West Virginia. In just a minute, we are going to reassemble the panel, so stick around. I'm Emily Wilkins with Jack Fitzpatrick. This is Bloomberg.
1: You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio.
7: No chance Joe Manchin switches parties despite Mitch McConnell's overtures. That's what we just heard from Mike Plant, the West Virginia Democratic strategist who has worked both for and against Senator Manchin. I'm Jack Fitzpatrick, co-hosting today with Emily Wilkins. We've got our all-star panel with us Jeannie Zano, Rick Davis are on the phone. Let's follow up real quick on all the mansion drama of this week, especially because we heard at the top of the hour from Congresswoman Madeline Dean, a Democrat, member of the Progressive Caucus from Pennsylvania. You know, she she referenced reports, I believe the first report was from Huffington Post, others have uh, confirmed it. I see ABC News has had it that Senator Manchin raised the concern that the child tax credit is going to go to people uh, using it to buy drugs. She raised this as something she finds offensive. She used the word bigoted. It really seems to be exposing a rift among Democrats on the child tax credit. Jeannie and Zeno, what did you make of the Congresswoman's uh, comments on that, and how big of an issue is that as an sort of intra-democratic party rift?
3: I think there is a lot of pushback on that. And she, I think the words she used were offensive and bigoted. And, and mm-hmm. I would agree on that. Um, and I think a lot of Democrats feel that way. On the flip side, you hear Republicans talking about Bette Midler's tweet about West Virginians. So we're Oof. getting it from mm-hmm. both sides. And, um, you know, but, but I do have to say, I thought it was a very unfortunate statement by Joe Manchin that Democrats really have to push back against.
7: Okay, so if, if Senator Manchin has an eye at all on 2024 for his reelection campaign. He is not alone looking at 2024. We recently heard from Senator Ted Cruz uh, that he is absolutely interested in running for president. He said that in an interview with the Truth Gazette, a conservative outlet run by 15-year-old Brylin Hollyhand. What a scoop for a 15-year-old. I didn't get that when I was that age. <laughs> uh, let's listen to what Senator Cruz had to say about 2024. Absolutely.
4: Uh, in, in a heartbeat. You know, I ran in 2016. Uh, it was the most fun I've ever had in my life. Uh, we had a very crowded field. We had 17 candidates in the race. Very strong field. And, and I ended up placing second. And, you know, there's a reason historically that the runner-up is almost always the next nominee. Mm-hmm. And, and that's been true going back to Nixon or Reagan or, or McCain or Romney. That, that has played out repeatedly.
7: So there's some history there, uh, Rick. I'm, I'm curious where what, where you think Senator Cruz is really positioned given his performance in 2016.
2: Well, I, I used to love the saying that John McCain had all the time that uh, if you're a United States senator and if you're not in incarceration or rehab, you consider yourself a candidate for president <laughs> of the United States, and, uh, and 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 he's no exception. Look, I mean, he did he did have a very powerful run uh, in 2020. And uh, he, he does sort of have the, I would call, more movement conservative backing. Uh, the party's changed a lot in four years by the time he puts right. his name on a ballot. And, uh, and the question is, does he really match up with that, that new movement in the party? I, I would say that might be a, a problem for him. Uh, but he's got name ID. He's got a big uh, group of financiers willing to back his campaign financially. He's got a network of operatives who still believe in him. Uh, he'll be a factor, but I think less and less the old adage that he mentions, which is you got to run and lose you know, and lose well, come in second uh, to have the shot at the, the brass ring next time around, mm-hmm. uh, those, those old adages may just be that, old adages.
5: Yeah. It seems like there is a growing sense, not just among Republicans, but Democrats, just sort of all Americans, where there's more of an interest in these outsider candidates, people who aren't currently involved in politics. I'm also just going to say that that I find it very interesting that uh, Ted Cruz said that he had the best time of his life during a process where both his wife and his father were insulted numerous times. Uh, but I also wanted to, to pivot sort of on, on the topic of elections uh, to... Uh, A story on the terminal about Wall Street, Uh, big names on Wall Street saying that they want to jump into various campaigns. We're seeing David McCormick, chief executive of hedge fund giant Bridgewater Associates, consider the Pennsylvania Senate race. Uh, Robert Grady spent three decades in finance considering challenging Liz Cheney in Wyoming. Uh, Rick Davis, I mean, is this a good thing if you're the head of the Democratic or Republican parties? Are you excited to have candidates with a Wall Street background looking to run?
2: you know not so much the wall street background but a big fat checkbook right i mean like campaigns uh, are run off of money uh, and when when guys like uh, mccormick and and yunkin get into these races they're self funders right i mean it's nice to raise money it's a good thing to do to help build support uh, but at the end of the day they're writing uh, really huge checks as he is doing right now to run commercials about himself for during the holidays uh, which is pretty unusual so Uh, I think they're much more attracted by uh, the financial resources than they are the job description. Youngkin showed that he was able to sort of fend off criticism from being from Wall Street, from a hedge, you know, from a big private equity fund. And I and I doubt McCormick would have any problem doing the same thing. It just depends upon how much the challenger, whoever the Democrat is or a Republican opponent, wants to make it uh, issue to prosecute.
7: Yeah, it was an interesting piece uh, that was a, in the Wall Street Journal about, you know, one potential takeaway people see from the Yunkin victory in the Virginia uh, gubernatorial race. I'm not sure if it's uh, guys with Wall Street backgrounds do well, guys who wear vests do well, all, all sorts of talk about his focus on education. <laughs> I, it, maybe it was the vests. That's, I, I think that's my position, is the vests really sell. Um, guys, this is Emily's last day and my last day for the week. Uh, hosting in Joe's stead. So this is sort of the end of the year for us. And I just wanted to get to making sense of the year 2021. There were so many big stories, uh, so much that it's, it's hard to figure out what was sort of at the top of the pyramid, what, what was at the top of our minds. Uh, everybody, quick, think of what was your biggest story of the year. Uh, Jeannie, do you want to go first?
3: I will go first without my vest on, I have to say, but I think you're onto something there. Um, You know, I think for me, the, the biggest story was sort of the crazy weather we saw from the beginning of the year, the Texas deep freeze to Hurricane Ida, the California wildfires, to the tornadoes in Kentucky and beyond, and the connection of that with climate change, the environment, and the lack of movement, both internationally to a certain extent, despite Glasgow, and the lack of movement on the Build Back Better bill. I think for For many, many young people that I talk to day in and day out, climate change is something that they agree on, whether they're conservative or liberal, needs to be addressed. They're worried about their future living on this planet, and the fact is time is going by and we still haven't seen a way to address this. So to me, that was one of the biggest, if not the biggest stories of the year.
7: Well, and that'll tie into the uh, Build Back Better bill if that, if those climate provisions are something that end up falling out of whatever skinny bill they try to do. Rick, what's at the top of your list? You know, I, 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 I got to say
2: January 6th, uh, the assault on the Capitol, the President of the United States uh, not wanting to give up power by backing domestic terrorists. Uh, it, it, it's still today one of the hottest topics. Every single hmm. day of the year. Uh, since January 6th. We've talked about it, uh, and it, and it's not going away. It'll bleed into you know, next year, I'm sure, because of the commission that's been set up to investigate it. Uh, so I, I really think that's had a profound impact on people's views of democracy, uh, their own security, and their own country. And it's certainly informed the opinion of the world, especially the authoritarians who look for our weaknesses uh, to, uh, to try and gain advantage. So I, I can't imagine one event Uh, all year that has had a bigger profound impact unfortunately for the negative uh, in the year 2021.
7: hard to think of, especially an event. Maybe there are big stories, but that is an event that really sticks with you. Uh, Emily, what's at the top of your list?
5: So before I do that, I'm just going to observe that Glenn Youngkin won wearing a fleece vest. This is very different from the sweater vest of Rick Santorum, which kind of, you know, he went down and (laughs) the sweater vest went down with him. Uh, But honestly, I I know we've discussed it so much on this show, but it's the top story of the year. I really do think it's the vaccine. I know Mm. that technically the vaccine was developed less Last year, but as far as scaling it up, getting it out there, who is taking the vaccine, who isn't taking the vaccine, how do we model the vaccine? To these different variants that come out. I just think that so much of our policy at a national level, at a state level, at a local level has really been shaped by that vaccine. And we're seeing it continue really firsthand as numerous places are now trying to impose more vaccine mandates. And we'll see what happens with the Supreme Court, whether or not they will decide on January 7th to uphold President Biden's mandate for companies that have 100 employees or more.
7: Right. An ongoing story. And I would say, I would imagine a a lot of people, hundreds of millions in the U.S., would probably consider getting that first shot maybe the most memorable part of the year. That that stands out to me personally. Oh, as, yeah, uh, I, I remember that the school gym I was sitting in. I'll, I'll probably never forget it. Uh, I have to go against the grain a little bit and say when the Senate in January went Democrats' way, I think that teed off a totally different economic, fiscal response that Democrats wanted uh, to take, very different than what we saw in the Obama years. The $1.9 trillion stimulus I don't think was just a bill, but a rethinking of how the government uh, focuses on the economy and a rethinking of fiscal policy. I I think that's hard to pin down to one day, one event, but I think that's a huge story that has uh, really long-lasting repercussions and obviously is still a a big deal with the social tax and spending bill. That's it for us. I'm Jack Fitzpatrick with Emily Wilkins. Thanks so much to our panel, Jeannie sheehan and Rick Davis. We had Congresswoman Madeline Dean on, Democrat from Pennsylvania. Great insights uh, from Mike Plant as well, Democratic strategist out of West Virginia. That's it for us. I'm Jack Fitzpatrick with Emily Wilkins. This is Bloomberg.